0: This is a Pain Information Network Q&A. Okay, welcome back. So I've got some questions here that I think need to be answered, and I haven't touched much on these questions in particular because, well, they're they're really a podcast in themselves, but I can answer these questions and kind of put something on the table to maybe provoke more questions or get some more ideas out there for you folks to uh, kind of query me on. Go to paininformation.com and uh, leave a question there, and I, I'll get to it. i <laughs> read them all. And uh, notice that uh, some folks are getting some interest for Andrea's book, which is really good. I'm forwarding those on to Andrea's. This uh, peripheral nerve book is the best one out there, bar none, And she has put a lot of time and effort into it, 900 freaking pages, a lot of illustrations it 's really well done, so uh, if you have any interest you know if you 're a healthcare care provider uh, really at any level and you 're interested in uh, peripheral nerves innervation, uh, referred pain patterns, things like that uh, don 't hesitate pick that book up. Uh, it comes in PDF form and hard copy, uh, and also a little more housekeeping. Uh, we have uh, some podcasts that i 've been holding back and reserving, I'm going to uh, release uh, Dr. Racks' uh, interview. And I, I held it back for a little while because of uh, uh, an important event uh, that was very close to the annual meeting for American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians. And uh, it, just, it just needed to be held back a little bit. But I, I think it's time you hear from this titan of pain medicine, one of the world's foremost uh, leaders in pain medicine, and hear his story. It's quite a story, a very, very nice man, uh, very, very interesting, and pain medicine wouldn't be where it is uh, if it was not for Gabor Rax, MD. Also, if you could uh, leave a review at iTunes, it really helps. It really does. It helps us get visible, and more people can find us. And uh, tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Uh, I'm interested in hearing uh, across the board. And let's get to the first question: abdominal pain. Uh, they, uh, the people at wrote in, uh, live in a household where an individual, uh, non-relative, has abdominal pain. 35 years old, nonspecific, and has been around the block, Uh, been on opioids, non-opioids, been on all sorts of adjuncts like the gabapentinoids, that's the Neurontin's Lyricus, and getting really kind of nowhere. The abdominal pain is diffuse, it's poorly poorly defined, it doesn't go to what we call a quadrant, right upper, left upper, right lower, you get it. It it doesn't do any of that. It just kind of migrates around. They've had complete workups, upper and lower GI. The pain is migratory. It doesn't really have any characteristics that is uh, going to say it's that or it's that diagnosis. With the upper GI, they've also had uh, uh, scans, you know, the the routine scans and uh, blood work. You know, they've had it all. And so it's not Crohn's disease. It's not um, an inflammatory process, and uh, there's no blood sometimes there is diarrhea but it's abdominal pain it's pain and it's annoying it's interfering with activities of daily living quality of life indices waking up from sleep and it's resistant to all types of treatment so what do you do well this is a male uh it's not a female so it's not going to be a gyn issue obviously but that doesn't mean it's not a gu issue uh and so When you start thinking about this broad differential of abdominal pain, you start thinking about the pathophysiology and the anatomy. Well, what I'm talking about is the tip of the finger gets a needle stuck on it, and you know exactly where the isolation of that needle is. You can feel it on the tip of the finger. Abdominal pain is different uh, from your developmental sequencing in an embryonic form It's more vague. It's more spread out, and it goes to weird places, and referred pain can be an issue. What do I mean by referred pain from the abdomen? Well, for you and I that might have an abdominal procedure such as um, a scope put in our abdomen through our belly button, and we're insufflated, or we get uh, CO2 put in our uh, belly, uh, we might wake up saying, my shoulder hurts. Well, your shoulder is fine, but there is uh, interrelationship between shoulder and abdominal nerves, and it has to do with the complex way, as an embryo forms, we lay out pain pathways. That's a referred pain. So you start thinking in this broad brushstroke of the differential diagnosis, well, what is it all about? Where does it go? What is the characteristics? What are the associated symptoms? Uh, Has anything helped? or is there something else going on? Now, I'm gonna throw this out. Uh, I am very careful with females, sometimes males, uh, and abdominal pain of unclear etiology. I'm very careful with it because um, it requires a a careful and well thought out interview. Many times, and I'm not gonna be able to give you a number, but many times there was or is something else going on. And in the case of uh, abdominal pain, sometimes that abdominal pain is interrelated to either ongoing or previous sexual abuse. Ongoing or previous problems with a relationship that leads to uh, a very uncomfortable, anxiety-laden problem that is gonna be likened to a form of PTSD or neurosis. We'll be talking about that. So what we have here is not necessarily a psychogenic problem, but it better be in the differential diagnosis. It doesn't have to be in there early. You've got a lot of work to do. We've got some work to do to figure this thing out. What is it, and how can I treat it? Uh, Okay, so it's medication-resistant. Everything has been a problem here Uh, a lot of side effects and sometimes medications add more problems than they help so what what's our next step abdominal pain well what level of pain is it Uh, try to put it in some type of uh subjective versus objective form and put the descriptors in well it's dull aching constant i'm going to say it's about a six over ten except when i what when i eat uh, when I have a bowel movement, when I go walking, there has to be some more descriptors and there are clues to help us discover more. And it may take a while. Abdominal pain with its vague uh, innervation and difficulty of isolation can be a story for us. It may take a while before we know what abdominal pain is. Another type of abdominal pain, I'm going to just throw this as a contrast Pancreatitis, inflammation in the pancreas. That's a characteristic pain that we can wrap our arms around. The scan will show it. Maybe some of the blood work will show it. Uh, we can uh, usually get a diagnosis of pancreatitis or pancreatic cancer, God forbid. Um, and we can then go ahead with a certain type of injection. Someday we're going to talk about it, I'm sure, that really can help. And that certain type of injection can also be very helpful with uh, leading us to a somewhat curative position uh, of pain uh, with, with the isolation of the pancreas. Now, that's not the case here, but let's think what else it could be. Well, is it the gallbladder? We usually have blood tests that point us one direction or another. Is it the liver? Again, blood tests one way or the other, but not always. Not always now the scans would have been very helpful, but uh, sometimes you you need a special GI procedure to really understand um, the intricacies between the liver, the gallbladder, the gut, and um, even special uh, understanding of blood flow It could it be anything to do with the kidneys well, the scans might help us there, um, but we may need to look at that a little bit more thorough but that's going to be more flank pain usually and usually we can pick it up um, somewhat with a, a urine assessment okay so here we have uh in it, this big workup and we're talking and talking and talking and we're doing more and more in-depth expensive workup and it doesn't matter what the cost is you gotta have an answer uh and so we have no diagnosis but we have abdominal pain in an individual that uh, is concerned by those that love around and is concerned by the individual who's now becoming somewhat disabled. So what do you do? Okay, once again, tincture time is your best friend. Number two, d- don't, uh, don't retract. Get out, get, get as much exercise as you're tolerating, and look at it as incremental movements forward. Benchmarks three, six, nine, twelve months. Uh, we can't maybe cure you, but we can help you heal. And sometimes we have to help you heal from a psychological refreshment standpoint. Cognitive behavioral therapy, support system, socialization. This individual sounds like they have friends, and that's that is critically important. Next, is there a psychological uh, referral to this pain? Is it? Um, Something that needs a little more analysis in this regard. It doesn't hurt to talk to somebody. I think that's just as important sometimes as getting a scan, and it's done often too late. We've got to get people in to talk to somebody. I don't necessarily need to know your deep darks. Uh, that's not necessarily me. Sometimes the, uh, the less people that know the deep darks, the better. But if somebody does know it, um, and there can be a professional communication. We can a- avoid some of these not only costly but invasive tests. We can avoid some uh, procedures and and definitely avoid some medications. All right, what else? I uh, cannot emphasize the the benefit of a good diet. If we're a little overweight, we have to start thinking of the benchmarks of as inclusive of uh, losing weight. Uh, If it's uh, somewhat migratory but appears to be uh, on the abdominal wall, I'm sure Andrea Trescott will have a peripheral nerve that could be blocked as diagnostic and therapeutic. And finally, you know, some of these more uh, invasive blocks may be indicated. It's not just uh, uh, the celiac plexus block that I'm referring to in, in pancreatitis. It isn't just isolating a block per se, but we do have options. And there's a couple other what we call plexus in the abdominal area that we can get to that we might want to consider blocking. And one of them is the inferior hypogastric plexus. And we're going to touch on that in a section coming up on pelvic pain. So we do have options for blocks, particularly with true uh, understandable pathological processes like pancreatitis or um, cancer of the pancreas that is so painful. We can we can get something going there. And um, so let's summarize here. When we look abdominal pain of unclear etiology, and we've ruled out organs, it isn't liver capsular pain, it isn't gallbladder, pancreas, colon, uh, intestinal, anything, uh, rectal. I mean, we've looked at the GU, GI, and uh, we know male versus female type characteristic pain. We've looked at it from a neuroanatomical position. We've looked at it from a pharmacologic position. Uh, Our diagnostics are done. We've done our job. Uh, I think what we need to do sooner than later is make sure that we include our psychological care providers, cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever they choose. We look at the potential descriptors that may lead us down a pathway of a, a whole other issue, uh, that, uh, uh, is like a form of PTSD, which we'll talk about. Uh, uh, that, that we can treat but <laughs> we're going to be treating it different than what we traditionally treat abdominal pain with so the take home message is keep a broad differential diagnosis keep an open mind and think clearly and sequentially with the benchmarks three, six, nine, and 12 months time will help this Rea- reassurance will help this friends will help this socialization will help this and then you um you make sure that you do maintain contact with your gi doctor or your gu doctor or your your primary care internist uh, throughout uh regular intervals maybe uh three months at every three months and uh, don't hesitate to bring up new symptoms and we can't just use that throwaway diagnosis we can't we can't just say uh, irritable bowel syndrome. or We, we can't just say um, it's in their head. Uh, we can't say they're drug-seeking. We can't do that. What we do is we systematically look at the problem and uh, rule out. I hate to use that term, rule out, but make sure that the bad things aren't there. Start working on getting the good things going again. Stay active, stay active, stay active. Exercise, think positively. Okay. This is a segue to pelvic pain. And this, this is going to be a whole podcast. And I had another question about pelvic pain. The question came up about interstitial cystitis. And interstitial cystitis has been an interest of mine for a long time. Pelvic pain is it, it's interesting in the fact that it's a lot like this abdominal pain that we were talking about. And it's, it's one of the diagnoses that has to be made in a sequential fashion. All right, let's, let's go through what interstitial cystitis is. It's uh, bladder pain in most uh, lay terms. Uh, they, it's, it actually has newer names, uh, pelvic floor pain, that sort of thing. And it's, uh, it's a difficult problem to have. And if you do end up with the actual diagnosis of interstitial cystitis, you really can be helped. So it, it's not just a bladder problem. Remember, I, I teach pain is inside out as opposed to outside in. Uh, the uh, central nervous system is involved probably more so than the peripheral manifestation of bladder pain or pelvic pain. This other pr- uh, problem called vulvodynia in, in females. And in males, it can be chronic prostatitis, quote, overactive bladder, urethritis, uh, and it leads to frequent urinary tract infections. It interferes with uh, sexual activity and frequent urination. The bladder kind of shrinks up. So, it's it's associated with other conditions. Uh, you know, the the fibro five, uh, irritable bowel, chronic fatigue, muscle pain, headache, and uh, pelvic pain, and irritable bowel syndrome sojourns uh, and. People have tried to link it to dietary considerations like uh, gluten sensitivity and the like. It's also a a setup for chronic uh, bladder infections, and there are changes to the uh, bladder itself. So the causes can be many different things. It can be uh, inflammatory. In fact, uh, there are a lot of mast cells, MAST cells, that uh, are a byproduct of um, kind of an allergic type activity. So if your eyes water in the the, um, hayfield and you're getting runny nose and that sort of thing, that's from a histamine release. And that involves mast cells. So it makes sense that we would look at this type of inflammation with an anti-inflammatory. And there's a number of those available. In fact, we sometimes even use a heparin-like uh, product uh, for its anti-inflammatory characteristics. So the diagnosis, well, usually uh, the history and physical will drive you to your diagnostic testing. Eventually to cystoscopy, they'll look in there and they may see these little things called Hunter's ulcers or uh, little petechiae, or uh, they may see kind of little erosive uh, lesions on the bladder. And it's because it loses this little coating on the bladder, in some cases, that protects it, and so it's irritable. That might be a source of uh, bacterial infections, particularly in females with a very short uh, ureter that uh, allows for uh, bacteria to scoot right into the bladder. So if there's a small bladder, when they check the uh, bladder size uh, by capacity, they'll – Plan a general anesthetic, the urologist, and they'll stretch the bladder. And there's other things to try. Um, these bladder installations are are, are good. Uh, the, another anti-inflammatory uh, is DMSO. Um, and it's um, probably, I don't know if it's more historical. I'm not a urologist, but I don't hear much about that anymore. The diet modifications are also key. And of course, it's, all, it's the elimination of all the stuff that's great <laughs> uh, chocolate, uh, hot peppers, sweeteners, fruits, uh, and of course, you know, alcohol. Got to really watch alcohol. And um, then also, we we put folks sometimes on um, these other drugs like an antihistamine uh, and amitriptyline, but that makes everybody drowsy and they tend to gain weight. It's anticholinergic. And cyclosporin. We've even used cyclosporin. Um, this is a, a a pain inside out. So antidepressants are used that have a mixed result. Ketamine, I'm telling you, this is, this is a good one with ketamine. So pain control therapies, um, folks will say acupuncture, and they'll, they'll work with uh, medications, and a lot of these people have a resistant uh, opioid issue. So opioids aren't our first choice, but they end up being a choice. The gabapentinoids, and um, I, I really like doing that procedure. I mentioned the hypogastric plexus block. It works probably in the 50% rule, where 50% get better uh, 50% of the time uh, with most pain treatments. Uh, but it's better than going the other direction. And, and most importantly, when these um, hypogastric gastric plexus blocks are performed, which are a little tough to do, they actually allow kind of a breather. Uh, that's what I call it. You can take a a breath, and it seems like the, the problem or the inflammatory problem that's evident uh, is does not get worse. It just kind of settles down. And no, it's not a cure, but it can help heal to some degree. It may save you a couple bladder installations or something along those lines. And it's a, it's a pre- pretty straightforward outpatient uh, procedure. Now, if it gets if it gets to the point where somebody wants to do surgery. I've seen bladders come out of folks, and they still don't get that much better. Again, inside out as opposed to outside in. All right, who gets it? Well, it's it's fairly pre- prevalent, uh, and it's a, probably a condition related to menopause, close to that. Uh, but a lot of women I've seen in their twenties, uh, and sometimes even even younger. And it's really not a rare condition. Folks come in with uh, frequency of urination. They come in with vague abdominal pain in the lower quadrant, sometimes midline. Uh, Sex is uncomfortable and and a lot of bladder infections. So they're coming in, and and then their story evolves. So I think the best thing to do is to get the uh, GYN doctor in early to get the urologist in early. And as I was talking about abdominal pain, it sometimes can be a little vague. Let's get the psychologist in early or the psychological care provider or the counselor. Let's talk uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Let's talk avoiding escalation of controlled substances, particularly in that young brain. And let's push the adjunctive medication like the gabapentinoids. Um, They're pretty good. Um, They're fair to good. But I think working with the urologist and with the GYN doctor, you're going to find you're coming out better. Everybody's coming out better. And it's uh, definitely the right way to go. It's not perfect. And is it curative? I don't think so, Uh, but I hope I'm in my career. I hope I'm completely wrong. Um, but let's look at it like abdominal pain let's stay active and once again like abdominal pain let's maximize our diet our health concerns we're setting up those benchmarks a lot of reassurance a lot of socialization um, and uh, these folks they they tend to as I've mentioned in previous podcasts about BDNF and um, situational pressure anxiety, they te- they tend to feel helpless and hopeless at some point, particularly if a lot's going on. Uh, it, it can be a little bit of a problem in, in marriages sometimes, but that's where your counselors come in. And that's where the folks come in that are so important to make, uh, everybody's life a little better. They can do it and they can do it. Reassurance, reassurance, reassurance. So you're going to, you're going to be pretty intensive on your visits early on with interstitial cystitis as we go through the diagnostic and uh, the acumen of information that we need, but it's worth it because if you have that kind of support system, you don't end up like so many folks um, kind of circling nowhere and feeling like uh, there's nowhere to go. All right, let's go into uh, a next uh, question that I had, And, and this was about, PTSD, but I got something to tell you about PTSD. All right, what what is PTSD? It's a post traumatic stress disorder. It gets thrown around all the time. Uh, it's it is considered a mental disorder, but it's not something that is uh, very difficult to treat. It's something that can be treated with the right steps, and can be significantly improved with the right steps. It can happen to anything. Uh, we relate it to war, you know, as shell shock and that sort of uh, disorder that's been going back in, in time, um, described in uh, in biblical terms, uh, and recognized, I guess, most dramatically in World War II through Vietnam. And it's famous where General Patton um, about, about lost his rank by... Um, getting into a young soldier about just stand up and get with it, man, and fight. It really hurt his uh, prestige in the military command for some time where he was in the hospital and the physicians were doing what it was right. They were isolating him uh, from combat because he, he was shell-shocked, and that is PTSD. So it can happen to, uh, so many, uh, different age groups. Um, we tend to see it in a little bit older folks and the first, uh, line of treatment is usually antidepressants, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but not benzodiazepines. It, it makes things worse. Do not give benzodiazepines. And I, I completely agree with that. Benzodiazepines in so many ways are our enemy. They are not our friend. Um, so, um, about three and a half to nine percent of folks uh, and I got that from wiki <laughs> I think it's I think it's probably a little higher because a lot of us go through some type of life event no kidding all of us go through a life event and some of us pull out pretty quickly we're resilient uh, others um, for whatever reason have more trouble that's okay um, let's work with that it seems hard to believe, but it. It, it wasn't officially recognized by the American Psychiatric Association until 1980. So how about that? But most people don't realize that uh, the, the DEA, really, the, um, many aspects of what the DEA does has only been around since 1970. So <laughs> things, are, uh, things are moving fast in medicine. So it, what, what's been reclassified in the DSM-5? since uh, we've moved it out of the anxiety disorder to trauma and stress-related, is we don't look at it like anxiety. Therefore, we don't want to give benzos. Uh, It is not that. Um, Obviously, trauma is an issue, but so many other things are. Even military experience, um, it doesn't have to be combat, but those that are in combat have more problems. Domestic violence, Substance abuse is common, particularly with alcohol. They self-medicate, and uh, it's um, it's a problem with veterans. So I, you know, my uh, my heart out to them. You know, they go for us now. Let's go for them and help. There is a neuroendocrinology uh, uh, pathway here that is important because I'm going to be talking about. The importance of catecholamines, uh, particularly norepinephrine and some of these others, uh, in other words, stressor-type hormones that are evident, picked up in the urine, and you can actually detect them and understand a little bit more about why we can start thinking of uh, different types of treatment. There's also changes in the hippocampus and the way we think, the prefrontal cortex, uh, other parts, and the amygdala, which has a lot to do with associations and things like that, um, and sleep um, people start to withdraw they lose their socialization once again socialization and they they lose a directed care approach once again benchmarks. So we want to get the psychological uh, refreshment in as early as possible. Cognitive behavioral therapy. We look at the differential diagnosis, just like what we've been talking about. We think inside out as opposed to outside in. Boy, I would love to use ketamine on this one. We know that the BDNF is going to be down. So, so we want to we want to get in early because the um, problem with PTSD is if it's completely untreated or inadequately treated. The risk of suicide or self-medication is pretty high. And morbidity and mortality, that's what I'm talking about here. So psychotherapy, CBT, and start working with medications, antidepressants. Uh, Some people are talking about cannabinoids. Let's not talk about that right now. Let's get some more science in there. Uh, And that we use some of these uh, unique drugs, these antidepressants and a drug called prazosin. It's... Responsive to some, but once again, like uh, mixed depressive disorder, there's some resistance in a a certain uh, patient population that vis-a-vis may be really good with ketamine. So I'm going to let you know, and we're going to be coming back to that at some point. So um, there's a lot of research going on that is considering this to be part of a, um, a stressor response leading to traumatic memory disturbance, sleep disorder, which t- tends to make things worse and worse and worse. So um, now let's, let's talk about something kind of interesting. Uh, Eugene Lipoff, who I know is a good guy, is a smart doctor. Uh, he uh, y- utilized his skills as an interventionalist uh, in an individual that had PTSD and did something called a stellate ganglion block. And there's a, a ganglion. Now, we were talking about celiac plexus ganglion. We were talking about the inferior hypogastric plexus. Segue into the stellate ganglion and PTSD. I told you neuroendocrines and norepinephrine and adrenaline-like uh, substances are evident. And um, a, a real issue with uh, PTSD, the blockage of stellate ganglion, the ganglion um, can significantly diminish the effect of those uh, chemicals' elaboration. So, um, Dr. Lipoff has reported in a couple pa- uh, papers that he's uh, seen results of uh, improvement in PTSD symptoms uh, and uh, improvement in mood disorder uh, significantly for up to a year with a fairly high response rate by doing the stellate ganglion. So what is it? We put you under an x-ray machine and we clean your throat with uh, your neck right next to the windpipe with uh, cleaning solution. And we put a needle on uh, a special ganglion in your neck. Uh, the, The literature says it's Simple and straightforward and safe. Actually, that block, (laughs) you got to really be careful with that block. It's got to be in skilled hands. It's got to be under x-ray, and it's got to be done by somebody that knows what they're doing. There's a lot of vital structures, carotid artery, the spinal cord. Even the lung has been implicated uh, in uh, complications with uh, this block. I don't know how, but somebody got the lung. And so, therefore, it is. It's listed as complication. Um, and uh, they have to know that these uh, chemicals that we're putting in there's local anesthetics are potent, and they do cause changes. But we want those changes in this case. In this case of the stellate ganglion block performed correctly, we decrease uh, some of these chemicals that seem to promote PTSD, and people get better. So something to think about, something to revisit. I think we'll probably uh, try to get Eugene on to talk about this. and. Uh, I'm glad people like Eugene are out there uh, promoting uh, a new way of thinking about uh, a kind of a who knew way of approaching a difficult problem. PTSD is a difficult problem and it's potentially life threatening in some folks. Okay, so, all right, um, we've got a platform for uh, revisit, and uh, I appreciate you coming. Again, questions, paininformation.com, and I will um, get some more stuff out and look forward to seeing you soon.